good evening, afternoon, whatever we call four or five o'clock. I'm not sure, but uh, we're here, so good day. How many uh, dads do we have here today? Go ahead and raise your hand. I know we've got a couple first-time dads, probably. This is your first Father's Day as a father. This is a special one. Max is in here. That's a, those are big ones. That, that first Father's Day, man, there's nothing like it. It's, it's pretty special. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about fatherhood today and being a father and being a godly man. But uh, before we jump into that, before we get into our message and our text, I think I'd be amiss not to take a moment just to talk about uh, what we saw happen this week. The horrifying events that, that happened at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I think it was Wednesday night. Uh, a young man walks into a church where he was welcomed and greeted with hospitality welcomed into that place, sits for over an hour, and has this thought come to his mind, and these people have been so nice to me, should I go ahead and should I still shoot them? Should I still kill them? And he chose to stand up, yell some remarks, and then kill nine people. Wounding people forever. Creating a sense of what just happened in my life, and they've lost loved ones. Um, the church is mourning. We have a community that is just bewildered. And you have a country that is having to, the, the ugly face of racism just keeps coming back and back. And the realization that we've not gotten nearly as far down the road as we had hoped and wished that we had. He, he said, this man, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want his name seared in our memory. But he said he wanted to start a race war. My prayer has been since that, that it will start a war against racism. That we would stand up and that we would really be about putting this to an end. Not making it better, but let's rage a war to put this to an end. And, and so often we have to think that people are looking towards the church more than any of these other events that have happened in the past few years. Because this event happened in the church. And so now they're looking to the church and they're saying, okay, what are the answers? What can we do? And we have to come with real answers to real problems. Too often, I think we can say, you know, we need a gospel response. We need a gospel solution. Great. What is that? What is a real response? What is a real solution? I, I think the family started off by showing a great, great response of what the gospel response is. As the man came to his arraignment, it was a video arraignment, and they allowed the families of the victims to, to speak and to share and one after the other, after the other, said, I forgive you. God, have mercy on your soul. One said, even though every fiber in my body hurts, I forgive you. You've taken away the most dearest thing to me, but I forgive you. So, so how do we respond? People are looking to us. How do we respond? I think as individuals of the church, we need to influence where we have influence. If you have... A, Influence in, in the political world, they get involved in the politics of this. Start trying to make change. By all means, get involved. If you're an artist, use your platform and skills to bring attention, bring awareness uh, into this and to help create some solutions to the racism that we see. You know, if you're, if you're just hustling nine to five, working at a job place, use your conversations in an intentional way to, to bring to be a reflection of God's transforming power. If you rally people, Rally people together. Rally people for prayer. Rally people for demonstration. 
But for me, I work in a denomination that is largely led by the white majority context. And while they have a heart to reach the, reach the nations, and they have a heart uh, to plant churches in the city, to start new churches in the city, they still don't get density and diversity. And, and you know, God bless them. I'm, gonna, I'm committed now more than ever to try and help them understand, to be that bridge between uh, the black culture and the white culture. And my goal is to help empower leaders, minority leaders, and get them places and help get them places of influence and power, not just second string or guns. We have to be about influencing and change. For all of us, there's two things that each of us must do. First, we have to develop genuine relationships with people that are different than you. The issues and the struggle of other people and other race and other cultures is not a problem until it's your problem. And if it will, it will not be your problem until you can empathize with people. And you cannot empathize with people until you know them. Until you know people that are different to you in a genuine way. So get to know people. Develop strong relations. Second, we all must pray for our leaders and those in authority. First Timothy um, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 says this. I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and look at this, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the prayer. Pray for those who have authority and have power to change the systems and the structure. Even the ones that we don't like and the people we disagree with, we're to pray for them. That peace may come about through our prayers. And that pleases God. And God is pleased when people will come to know Him through that peace. So we must pray. Let's pray right now. Father, we just come to you. Just a little um, shock problem. Still bewildered at what happened. But Lord, knowing that you are still in control, that you are a God of love, that you are a God of peace, that you are a, a God of compassion and caring, your desire, Lord, is for all to, to, to be gathered as a family to you, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation. And Father, so I pray Isaiah 65. Lord, I pray that never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years, Lord, I pray he who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere youth. And he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. Lord, I pray they will build houses and dwell in them, that they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Lord, I pray that no longer will they build houses that others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the day of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Lord, I pray that the chosen ones will long enjoy the works of your hands. Lord, I pray that they will not toil in vain or, or bear children doomed to misfortune. Or, Lord, that they will be a people blessed. I pray that they will be a people blessed by you. Lord, I pray that they will call and that you will answer. Lord, I pray for the day when the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. Lord, I pray that neither harm nor destroy on any of your God's people. Ask this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. All right, today we are, we are starting a new series. It's a, it's a three-week series called uh, The Ideal Man. And 
you get the you get a look at me for the first week of the ideal marriage. That's kind of scary, isn't it? But we're going to look at the biblical, biblical qualifications of what being an elder is. What, what, what an elders that we see in First Timothy three one through seven. Um, the, the Bridge Church has been growing. Uh, we've been growing in just our our faith and our walk with God. I think in our confidence and, and as a family, but we also have been growing in number. And as we mature, our leadership structure has to grow. Our leadership structure has to become more in line uh, with the scriptural understanding of what an elder is. Now, elder leadership was not simply a way the church, uh, the church was organized in the early church, but it, but it seems to be the way. And uh, I want to share with you several verses that just talk about eldership and show this prevalence of elders in the, the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts 15.22, we see, Then the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. So you see here that the elders, and there's more than one, called out some men and sent them out. Uh, the church of Ephesus, we see in Acts 20, uh, verse 17, from, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. James 5.14, James is addressing numerous churches. He says, is any, um, anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, the churches then found, uh, were, they were founded by Paul's missionary, first missionary journey. In Acts 14.23, he, Paul is writing this to them. And Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So over the next three weeks, you have uh, myself, you've got Rich, and you've got Josh that are just going to be giving you these three series about what is the ideal man. The ideal man. And, and because uh, the, the call of an elder is about the call of a godly man. A man that will come and, and serve his church. Uh, the, this series is, is not a series to puff us up. We're going through a year-long process of becoming elders within this church and, and helping serve and sacrifice for this church. It's not about puffing us up. But the reason why we're calling this series The Ideal Man because we just want to give a, a job description. What is the job description of an elder? And there's a couple things I want to share with you that I think may surprise you uh, about the call of an elder. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. These are the chapters over the next three weeks that we're going to unpack. I'm going to read them all, and then I'm going to focus on two of the verses in a minute here. Uh, but it says this. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer, that overseer and elder are used interchangeably. It just depends on the translation you've got. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert where he may become conceit and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into the disgrace, into the devil's trap. Two important things we need to see in these verses. The, the first thing I want you to see is here in verse 1, it says, Here's a trustworthy saying. 
if anyone sets his heart on or has this desire to be an elder uh, or an overseer, he, he desires a noble task. So, so we see that this is a good thing to desire. It's not about the, the humble leader that says, oh, I can't believe you would choose me. Why, why would you choose me? No, it's about somebody who believes that, that God has positioned them and placed them and called them, and he desires to, to oversee and help serve and sacrifice for the church. Um, and, and I believe that one of the biggest misnomers, though, about eldership is this, though, that the, the elders are, are something that, that not all can acquire and attain to be. Not everybody's called. Not every man will be an elder within the church. But what we see, the characteristics and the qualities of elders are things that so many of us can become and be. It's about being a godly man. It's about putting God first and, and having the characteristics that, that God desires and wants us uh, to have and, and to be. So there's two things, really two things you've, you've got to see in this. First, elders are often seen as this, this, these men of power and position. You read these scriptures, and you're like, yeah, man, who wouldn't want to have that kind of power? Who wouldn't want to have that kind of position? But that is not the call of the elder. The call of the elder is not power and position, but it's sacrifice and service. I would go as far to say is that elder is about the willingness to give oneself, even his life, for the church and the people of the church. Look at Matthew 20, uh, verse 25. I bookmarked that my daughter made me for getting well this fell out. Father's Day, sitting right there. Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them together. So his disciples, what's happening is the disciples are getting a little power hungry. And they're wanting to know who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus. So he calls them together and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever, comes, uh, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom to many. Do you hear that call of an elder? It's not about position. It's not about power. It's about sacrifice. It's about service. Um, does some you know, position or power or authority come with the position of elder? Yes. But, but it only comes out of the willingness of that man to sacrifice and to serve the church. And who wouldn't want to come and rally behind the person? It's willing to give up uh, their life to sacrifice and serve the church. Also, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the other thing you've got to see about elders is um, that, that the qualifications are things that all men should be obtaining and achieving and striving for at all times. And in our series of Ideal Man, we're going to talk about five, or excuse me, three things. We're going to talk about being a father, about being a teacher, and being a man of God. How to walk faithfully in those three things over a long period of time. And, and today's Father's Day, so take a guess which one I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> and I think I'm the, as Liz likes to point out, I'm the oldest man in the church. And so I get to talk about being a dad, which is one of my favorite things, of being a dad. Um, and, and I'm excited to share with you just some things about uh, fatherhood. So, in talking about father, you know, we read that passage 3, 1 through 7. We're going to look at 3, 4 through 5. Let me reread that, and then we're going to dive in there. Verse 4 says, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. 
And in verse 5, and we're going to start with this verse and unpacking. It says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So the first point I want to make this afternoon has nothing really to do with being a father. But it comes from that last part of the text that we just read, verse 5. And it's this. This is God's church. It says, this is how, how can he take care of God's church? It's not my church. It's not James's church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the worship's band's church. This is God's church. And, and notice the flow of those words. Look at, look at the pattern. This is, verse 5 says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own what? If he doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? What would you think him to say? If he can't manage his family, how can he manage God's, God's family? That's very intentional. See, church is not like a family, but it is a family. It's God's family. And we've got to stop thinking of church that, that it's, it's like a family. Because it is a family. It's God's family. And the Father sent the Son, Jesus, to, to, to rally, to bring, bring brothers and sisters, the siblings together, which are you and I. So God is the Father. Jesus is the eldest Son. We are the brothers and sisters. And through Christ, we can come to know the Father. This is the message that we see in the Bible. Look at these verses. Ephesians 2.19 you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Hebrews 3.6. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his, in his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the people in which, uh, excuse me, in which we glory. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18 I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Church is not like a family. It is a family. And if you miss this, you're missing such an important part about the work of the cross. Christianity offers forgiveness and it's made available through the death resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of, our, of the Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. But forgiveness was made available to us so that we can come home to a father. Forgiveness is not the goal. The father is. Coming home to the father is the goal. When me and my wife have some beef and I have to go and apologize to her. My apology, the goal is not just to have her say, yes, I forgive you. And then walk out of the room and not talk to her. The goal of my apology is to restore the relationship so that we can be intimate again. Think of the story of the prodigal son. The wayward son asks his dad for his inheritance, denying sonship, denying family, takes his money, leaves the family property, leaves the neighborhood and community, totally abandoning his family and his father. He goes and, and wastes the money, spending it on wild living, and then he comes to his senses. And he realizes what he had done. And he realizes all that he had. And so he puts together, and he starts practicing and rehearsing his speech. And he says, I'm going to go to my father and ask him for forgiveness. And I'm going to ask him to, to accept me, not as part of the family, but as a servant within the, the estate or within the household. And so he goes to his father. And we know the story. His father sees him and starts running to him and comes and, and grabs him and hugs him. And he throws a ring on his finger and he puts a a robe on his back and sandals on his feet. 
and the son starts to starts his rehearsed speech and starts to tell the father, I've sinned against you, will you? You know, and the father's just like, hush, hush, hush. And he puts all this thing on, all these things on him. What's he say? That you're forgiven? Yes. But you're also part of the family again. The family ring, the robe, all those things are symbols of that you are part of a family. Forgiveness is not the goal. Coming home to the father is. So if the church is not like a family, but is a family, then we have to structure it like a family. Right? Too often, though, churches are run like orphanages. You know how you define an orphanage? An orphanage is a bunch of underserved kids led by overburdened staff. A bunch of underserved kids led by overburdened staff. But at the Bridge Church, we're a family. And in the family, everyone has responsibility. And everybody does some work, right? So in my house, after dinner, here's what happens. I don't know. I'll probably get the orders mixed up. All I know is I know my role. We all have roles. So after dinner, my role is the couch in ESPN. It's okay. Listen, nine out of ten times, I probably cooked it. So my role was to prepare the dinner, okay? So after dinner, I hit the couch. Mishy grabs the plates and starts scraping them and takes them over to Maddie, who's rinsing them, and gives them to Katie, who puts them in the dishwasher. Then Maddie washes the dishes that, that don't go in the dishwasher. Katie goes off to her room, listens to some music, maybe does a load of laundry, comes back when they're washed, dries them, and puts them up. I'm still trying to figure out with Jen. I think Jen just kind of directs all this stuff. Because <laughs> I know she ain't cooking at me. <laughs> so she's got her role too, I'm sure. If, if one of them doesn't do their role, then somebody has to, you know, step in. Because we don't have dirty dishes in our sink. I'm a little OCD. So we, I don't like it. So somebody has to step in. It's the same way here. If we don't operate as a family and we're not all doing our role within the church, the problem is somebody has to step up and take your role. And then, then just a little bit, we become a little bit more like an orphanage than a family. So we all have a role. And, and, and when you structure around a family, within that family you have servants and, and leaders and you have people that work. And, and, and that. so that's where we're moving towards. So, so I think the big question, and I'm going to hit it briefly, and I'll, I'll let James take care of it when we come back, when he comes back, but can ladies be elders? And uh, can women lead in the family as elders? There's a lot we've got to cover. So this could take a whole series, but just let me say real quickly. One, we've addressed that issue on some podcasts, and we can try to find those podcasts if, if you want to listen to those. But we believe that eldership is reserved for men. And listen, it is not a skill issue. It's not about skills. It's not about gift sets. It's about role and design. It's about how God structured things from the very beginning of time. And uh, so, so we believe that eldership is, is reserved for men. But here's what I think the problem is. Men, I want you to kind of think about this. I want you to really pay attention. Because I believe the reason that this is, is, is an issue is, one, because original sin. God said, listen, you know, because of this original sin, there's always going to be strife between man and woman. There's always going to be this, this battle and this unknowing of, of roles and, 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 you know, trying to uh, fill other, other roles. But second... I believe it's because we have a lot of pseudo-men. I think we have a lot of boys that are acting like men. We have a lot of boys that shave. We have a lot of boys that pay rent. We have a lot of boys that 
that work, but you're still acting like a boy. Here's the difference. A man defends others. A boy constantly needs defended. A man prefers to give. A boy is always looking to receive. A man is always looking to grow himself and others than God. A boy is passive about his relationship with God and always dependent upon others for growth. A man does not check out other women or degrade women. A boy looks to satisfy his own needs. A man works a job. A boy works your nerves. <laughs> a man thinks about marriage. A boy thinks about sex. A man saves for investments. A boy saves for video games. A man admits his mistakes. A boy makes excuses. A man respects his and his girl's purity. A boy will abuse purity. A man has godly integrity. A boy makes promises he can't and doesn't intend to keep. The first step in being a leader within your home, within your church, is growing up. With the grace and power of God, start thinking, acting, and being a man. So, so the church is God's family, and if we hope someday to lead and steward it, we must start thinking about how we're stewarding our own homes, our own lives. What does that mean for the single guys? How many single guys we have in here? All right, single ladies, maybe we'll do a little thing afterwards. <laughs> um, can, can a single man be an elder of the church? Because it talks so much about family and how he stewards his family. Absolutely. Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament, was single. Jesus was single. But Paul had, had Barnabas and Timothy. Jesus had the, all the disciples. They were men that lived in community and showed how they could lead and, and, uh, and, and sacrifice and serve a family in different ways. They demonstrated their ability to care for God's people uh, in their singleness. And, and they, they used their singleness in a way that, as a gift to help others and, and the time, gave them extra time to do things. Is it more difficult, I think, to, to look at a, an elder as a single man and, and try to evaluate how he leads a family? Yes. But is it impossible? Absolutely not. So look, look at back at our text. The passage implies that church is not like a family, but it is, it is a family. More so, God's desires to have a group of men oversee his family, which means they serve and sacrifice his family. These men are called elders, and one of the attributes, attributes of an elder is he fathers well. So look, look at the verse before verse 5, verse 4. It says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children, his children obey him with proper respect. Uh, so the things that we need to notice here in verse 4. One is that an elder leads a well-ordered home. An elder leads a well-ordered home. A crucial evidence of a man's ability for being an elder of God's family is proof that he can manage and order his own home in a, in a good way. Uh, the, the Bible teaches us that the home is a testing ground. It is a testing ground. Use my... Best dad ever, handkerchief right here. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to me. Um, the Bible teaches that the home is a testing ground for ministry. Show me how you steward your wife, your children, and your finances, and that is most likely how you're going to steward church. Think about it. Men, think about the home. For a home, it is the place that, that most tests a man's fleshly desires against his call to be a godly husband and a father. If we're honest with him, what are the two things that we value the most? 
We can say we value Jesus, we value the church, we value our wife and kids, sorry about that. We value all that. But the truth is, that in our sin, the things that we value the most are our time and our money. In a home with a wife and with children, the thing that you're going to lose the most of is your time and your money. They'll suck you dry. So it's all about, again, it's about sacrifice and serving. Right? So when you come home from work and, and you want to hit the couch, you want to grab the remote, man, that's, you don't get to do that. Because now it's time to engage your kids. You know, it's time to get on the floor and wrestle with them. It's time to, to, to uh, you know, help with the homework. It's, it's time to change that diaper. You've got to get in the game because you're sacrificing your, yourself. Because it's your family. It, it, it's time to engage your wife in the communication. It's time to nurture her. It's, it's, it's the time where you run the bath for her when, when you want to hop in the shower and just get in bed. You know, it's the time where you put it away in the dishes even though it's not your turn. I remember when I was first married, and I wouldn't have been considered probably a good elder because I didn't manage my home very well. We didn't have kids or anything, and my wife said something about if I could clean the bathroom. I said, listen, I'll do a lot of things. I'll do anything in this house, but I do not clean the bathroom. Because who cleans the bathroom every night right now? I do. <laughs> this guy. Right? Because it's about service and sacrifice. And a little, a little bit of... Um, Persuasion by my wife. <laughs> but your home is a test because it's going to test your time, it's going to test your money. When you buy, want to buy the things that you want that your children have the school activity, or your wife needs this, it will test your time and, and it will test your money. If, if you are a cold and absent father, your children will see God the same way. You will see him as cold and absent. If you are a harsh and demanding father, your children will see God as a harsh and demanding father. If your love to your children and wife is dependent upon them doing the right thing, your children will go through their life trying to please you and never feel like they can do enough to please you. And then they will think the same thing about God. And they will become bitter. They will become hard-hearted against God, you are setting them up for failure in that. This does not mean as husbands and fathers that we're, that we're perfect. We're going to mess up sometimes and, and sometimes we're going to mess up majorly. But even in our blunders, even in our mistakes, it's a chance to leave your wife and children and show them the grace of God. I, I'm, I'm honored on one occasion. I've had to tell my children I'm sorry. I mean, like, like a legit sorry. Not, hey, I'm sorry about that. But sit them down and say, I've messed up. And it usually comes out of my frustration. It's not an anger, but it's a frustration. And I'll, and I'll yell, I'll snap, and I'll, you know, I'll do the things my mom would do when I didn't fold my laundry right and take everything and throw it out on the floor. Uh, one time, this is great, one time I, I thought I'd get by and I'm like, I just don't do the dishes right. She'll just do them and I won't have to worry about them. My mom pulled every dish from the counter, under the sink, everything, every dish from the sink, said, You need practice. You know, that kind of stuff. Throw my clothes. So you know that was my. That's what I did. And so sometimes, even this week, I, I had to go to my daughters and say, "Listen, I'm, I'm sorry. I was frustrated. But I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I shouldn't have demeaned you that way. I should not have tried to break you, break you down that way. Will you forgive me?" And then it is an opportunity to remind them that God has forgiven me. And now I'm asking you to forgive me. And it's also an opportunity for for me to remind them. 
1 Corinthians 13, the big love passage, towards the end of that, it talks about us being a dim reflection of the Father and the Son. And I'm a dim reflection of God. But you know what? I'm still a reflection of Christ. And sometimes a dim reflection is enough. I used to have one of those shaving mirrors in my shower, in the old school ones, man. They were like real hazy and foggy and stuff like that. I mean, you wouldn't want to put makeup on with them. But you know what? I could shave with it. I could do enough to shave. And that's the kind of dim reflection we are of the Father in Heaven sometimes. It's enough. And it's a way to lead them to Christ. We're going to be a dim reflection. We're going to mess up. But it's a chance to show our family God's grace and ask them for grace in return. This word in verse 4, it talks about managing, has two primary kind of connotations in this passage. First, it literally means to, to stand before. So the ideal man, what's he do with his family, his wife and his kids? And how does he lead the church? He stands before them. He's a provider. He, he keeps the protector. He stands. It's, it's like, it's like you know, when somebody's breaking through that front door, it's like, get behind me. I'm going to stand before you. They're going to have to come through me before they get to you. Now imagine that in the church where you have men that's going to say, get behind me. We're going to stand in front of you and protect you no matter what. That's the call of an elder. That's the call of a father. That's the call of a man to stand before but second, it means to serve and to care for. So in this one word, you get this picture of the ideal man. He is a man that will stand strong with a mighty hand. Not a whole lot of people on the front row. These lights are seeing my spit line everywhere. He's a man that will stand. Sorry. He's a man that will stand with a mighty hand and stand before and protect. So you're going to have to come through me to get to them. But on the other hand, he's gentle and caring. What a picture of, a, of, a, of an ideal man. Someone who has the presence to protect and provide that mighty hand, but yet a gentle hand of caring and comfort. So let me give you guys four real practical ways, things that I try to do in my home. I just hate it when my wife and kids are in here when I'm preaching these kinds of messages. It's like honesty check, right? That keeps me humble, keeps me true. So let me give you four practical ways I try to be a good father. I fail at home again. I'm a dim reflection. But I fail on these sometimes. But these are, these are what I try to do. And, and by no means is this an exhaustive list. There's a hundred things you can think of in this. But let me give you four big things I try to do. The first thing I do to try to, to manage well, to be a good father, is I love my wife. I love my wife. The best thing I can do for my daughters is, she, is to show them that I love my wife and respect my wife publicly and privately. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love his church? He sacrificed and he died for her. My kids understand that they are welcome additions, but they're not the center of attention. They are welcome additions. We're glad you're with us. <laughs> but you're not the center of attention. My primary, my primary earthly love lies me towards Jennifer, not my daughters. If I ever get that messed up, we've got problems. Madison, she's 14 now, but uh, I can say all along about her. She's not a so, Madison's 14 now. When she was five, she wanted to marry her dad. Right? So, we had a ring. We had a little ceremony. <laughs> Katie Beth, my 15-year-old, preached it. I know. I talk about women can be elders. I'm a hypocrite. She was, Katie was six at the time. We had a little service and a sermon, you know, a little message and stuff. And we were married. 
She asked my wife, Maddie asked my wife, she said, when you die, do I get your spot and back in the bedroom? Right? See, that's cute when she's five. But Maddie's 14 now. And if she still thought she was married to her dad, and wants the spot in the bed next to me when mom dies, that's creepy. That's wrong. So, you know, things that are cute when they're five, that, that, that's fine. But, but there's a priority now. She knows that I'm married to her mother, and her mother is always going to be the center of my attention. They're welcomed additions, but they're not the center of our attention. So I'm, I'm also going to love my wife because my daughters will not grow up. They're going to grow up, and they're going to be in this home for a little while. But one day they've got to leave. You know, I want them out of the house. And when they're gone, I love you girls, but you've got to get out. You've got to, and when they're gone, what am I left with? I'm left with my family. Me and my wife. We're still a family. And, and I've got to steward that well now because I don't want them to leave and be like, okay, is it just me and you now? What are we going to do? No, we're, we're excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I do is I love my wife. The second thing I do to, to be a good father and manage my household well, I try to do, is to give loving discipline. Uh, the second part of this verse uh, in 3, 4 says that the elder should see that his children obey him with proper respect. We, we all know that children naturally come out of the womb not respectful. They come out of the womb not obeying. I mean, it, it is a, it's a me monster. It's about my comforts, my needs, what, what I want. Discipline is, is instilled in them. It's taught in them. And if you look at that same verse in the uh, ESV translation... The verse says, with all dignity, keeping children submissive. So there's two ways of keeping children submissive. There's an undignified way, and there's a dignified way. The undignified way is screaming, beating, or yelling our demands to our children. To have them submit out of fear and shame. This is undignified, and will only make your children bitter at you, and it will make them bitter at God. The dignified way is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, 4. It says, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instructions of the Lord. Do not exasperate. Do not frustrate them. Do not, do not you know, yell at them for no reason. But bring them up in the training of the Lord. The third way I try to manage my family and try to be a good father is uh, take time for my family. Presence over provision. Giving up some things I'm not going to be able to provide for them so that I can be present with it. As a husband and a father, how do I show my wife and children what's most important to me? It's the presence. It's presence. There's not presence. Don't get excited, girls. Presence. It's on the screen. Presence. And it's by being with them. It, it, it's listening. It's, 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 you know, it's just, I mean, there's a lot of things that I can do. Good things that I can do. I can go out and hustle and work some and, and provide more food for them, more shelter, more entertainment, more of the things that they want. But if I spend too much time doing those things, they're going to grow up thinking that daddy loves work more than he does mom or more than he does me. They're going to think that his friends are more important, that his hobbies are more important. In, in Scripture, we see a pattern of, of where men were, were personally involved in the education and the training and the raising of the children. The time and presence was so important to the health of these children. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 says, gives us this idea of being present. It doesn't talk about being with them all the time. It says, when you're with them, make it so intentional. It says this, these commands that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Now listen to this, impress them on your children. 
talk about them when you sit down in that hall and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you wake up. It has this idea of just being present with, with your children. So here's the fourth thing I try to do, to manage my family and to, to show my kids that I love them, is I, I love and follow God. I love and follow God. And if you want to be an ideal man, you have to love and follow God. I am more concerned about the preparation of my children than I am about the protection of my kids. The greatest gift I can give my children is an example of what it means to be a faithful follower of God. Even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it would be easier to go this route, I want my girls to know that I'm going to follow God even, even in the hard times and even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, Genesis 22 has this picture of Abraham. Many of us know this from this famous Bible story about Abraham who had this son after many years of God telling him that he's going to be um, the father of this great nation and he, he didn't have any children. So he finally had the son after many years and then God tells him, I want you to take him to the top of this mountain and sacrifice him. In verse 6, um, so, so he loads up, Isaac is his son's name. He takes Isaac and, and they load up and they start heading for this mountain. And then in verse 6 it says this, Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, said to, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? Jump down to verse 9. It says, when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now picture that. His son on this altar getting ready to sacrifice him. What do you imagine? You imagine this young little kid, four, five, six year old kid, sitting on the altar being asked, you know, hey, where's the lamb, Dad? The truth is, Isaac was much older than that. Who carried the wood up the mountain? Isaac did. Isaac carried the wood. Abraham was an old man. Old man. That his wife, the term used, to describe her was she's as good as dead. He's an old man. And he had a young, vibrant son, almost a teenage boy, carrying wood up a mountain. His son could have taken his father in any moment, but he allowed himself to be tied in that Why? I think because his dad followed God so closely that his son followed him. He says, if this is what my dad's says his best, and God knows it's, it's comes from God. I wish I could lead, I would want to lead, I strive to lead my family in a way that my daughters will follow me no matter what. Not because I'm their dad, but because they know that I follow God. And if, if I'm in communion, communication with him, and I wouldn't lead them in a way that would hurt. Because see, I'm more concerned with preparing them than I am protecting them. Before we close our time, those are the four ways. I'll write them down. I hope they help. But before we close our time, I think we, we would be doing a disservice if we don't address the reality of so many in this room are dealing with, and, and so many in our country, especially in the urban areas, and that is the epidemic of fatherlessness and father wounds. In 1960, 11% of our children grew up in absent, uh, absent of the father, the biological father. Today, the number is closer to 40-45%. In the African-American urban context, it's closer to 70-75% to of 
men, young, young girls and boys are growing up in a home without the Father. And this has caused immeasurable, immeasurable community, social, economic, but most importantly, spiritual casualties. And, and there's two responses to father wounds that I see. The first is anger and pain. The Bible shows this clear connection between the anger of a, son, of a child and his dad. Colossians 3.22, 3.22 says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. We have so many, so many young men that are discouraged because they have these wounds from their father. But the second response is a bottling up of feelings. To pretend like you're not affected, to pretend like, man, I'm just, I've got this. Uh, this isn't a thing. I, you know, I had my dad around pretty much my whole life, but my dad had um, went through a season where he uh, was not around as much and caused a lot of hurt and pain in our family. And uh, I was a 30-year-old man and trying to impress him and, and get the, the recognition and approval of my father. And I was working for him and, and there was a, a job that I was on and, and there was this big piece of equipment that I pulled out of a hole. And I should have stopped and got help. But I wanted my dad to know that I could do the job and stuff. And I remember being a 30, 31 year old man. And after dropping that piece of equipment, doing about $2,000 worth of damage, driving home, just crying, sobbing, and weeping. Not, not because the $2,000 worth of damage, it was a business. Things happen and pay and we move forward. But I was crying because I was afraid I was going to disappoint my father. There are wounds that, that will stick with us. John Sowers in the book called The Fatherless Generation wrote, Fatherlessness creates an appetite in the soul that demands fulfillment. The soul will be filled with something. And that usually manifests itself in unhealthy ways such as addiction, drugs, attention, or this desire to perform. All of us, all of us probably here, we, we know that present or absent, good or bad, father-son, father-daughter relationship is significant in shaping us. None of us were raised by perfect fathers. Remember, we're, we're all dim reflections of, of Christ at best. And so none of us were raised by perfect fathers, and all of us are wounded to some degree or another. The danger of unforgiveness, though, towards our father is two things. One, you're going to be judged how you judge others. So where you're unwilling to forgive, you will not receive forgiveness. The other, uh, Hebrews 12.10 says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good that we may share in His holiness. Listen, some of you guys have some jacked up father stories. I'm not trying to belittle those. Many of your fathers just did what they thought was best. And many of them have no clue we're going to align ourselves under a holy father, a God who says, you know, forgiveness is, is great. It's better as the father. To me, to come into my presence, the best way to get over your father room, to start moving forward is forgiveness and establish God as your true father. Offering forgiveness. I know it sounds trite and I know it sounds hollow, but it is. Also, as, as elders and leaders in this church, we're available. We want to be a father to you in a sense. We want to shepherd you. 
We want to stay. It's about sacrificing and giving. We, we want to help you see what does a healthy family look like. Come over to our house anytime. Have dinner with us. You see our dysfunctional family. When I say, you know, we're dysfunctional, but we put the fun in dysfunctional. We're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to have fun. you going to learn. So we're, we're dealing with these things. They're real and present. But we're here to serve and to sacrifice. And, and, and to just leave and to say, hey, you know, if there's a, there's a peace missing in your life, let us help. First guide you to the Father for spiritual forgiveness. And also be present to help you with some practical tools and tips on, the, on how on, on how to move forward. That's our goal. We want to serve. We want to love. And that's what a father does. Sacrifice and serve.